Thank you for joining Between the Waves. This is your host, Ness in Birmingham. Today I'm welcoming Julia Vitorello. Julia lost her daughter, Mila, to Batten's disease last year. Following the diagnosis, Julia, in partnership with Dr. Timothy Yu, paved the way for the first N of one genetic medicine, Milicin, to treat Mila. To support her daughter, Julia established the Mila's Miracle Foundation, and more recently, the N equals one collaborative, to establish the path for N of one genetic medicine development so that other parents do not have to watch their children suffer from these devastating genetic diseases. Thank you, Julia, for um, being here today. Well, Julia, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today um, on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time and um, give, telling us a little bit about the work that you're doing. Obviously, you're a huge advocate for N of 1 therapeutics uh, for those patients that have genetic diseases, whereby we can actually have to design effectively bespoke uh, medicine for them. Uh, you founded Myla's uh, Miracle Foundation um, as a first step in this. Could you tell a little bit, us a little bit of story about the history and obviously, you know, Myla's life and what led up to this? Yeah, and thank, thank you, Ness, for, for inviting me on. Um, so... You know, my daughter Mila, when she was about six years old, she was um, went from being completely outgoing and healthy Colorado child, you know, hiking and skiing and um, singing and diving into pools and riding bikes like every kind of outdoor kid here in Colorado and quite advanced verbally. She went from that um, over the course between four and, four and six years um, to starting to lose all of her abilities. Um, it started out kind of in a way you might recognize from kind of the rare disease diagnostic odyssey where some things start to go wrong and every doctor told me I was crazy and that her interned feet and her um, stuttering and her um, stepping on toys and not seeing things um, they were all kind of independent problems that she would outgrow and that from four years old to six years old turned into a very serious symptoms that no one could figure out, you know, no one could pinpoint what was wrong. And at six years old, um, I gave up after a hundred doctor and therapy visits, you know, all over the country and brought her into the ER at Colorado Children's and just put my hands up. And, and within a week of testing at the time, five or six years ago, they did not do just immediate genetic testing. There was kind of a whole battery of clinical tests and then that narrowed it down. And then there was genetic tests. And she was diagnosed with a rare form of an already rare disease called Batten disease, um, which basically, you know, went from me being incredibly relieved that I wasn't crazy, that there was actually an answer to what was going on with Mila, um, to um, doing some research and realizing that it was the worst, you know, diagnosis you could ever receive. And, and I don't know how, in my mind, it seemed impossible that my extremely echoing, like, typical child. I was being told that she was going to have, you know, a combination of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, epilepsy, and blindness, you know, all together and was going to die in the next few years. And there was no cure and it was 100% fatal. No child had ever lived with that disease. And there were like 25 kids in the world that were known to have her type of Batten, you know, seven. And, and, you know, my whole life as I had known it up till I was, you know, at that point I was 40 years old and everything that interests me, all my passions, everything just disappeared um, that day. There's no way to describe um, that feeling. And so that's kind of how it started this all. And, and to be honest, I um, 
cried on the floor of my closet for a week straight and had a two-year-old at the same time who needed me and Mila who needed me. Um, and I just started then picking myself up and reading anything and everything about bad disease, about genetic disease, about lysosomal storage disease, which is the type of disease she had. And calling researchers and scientists and reading white papers of which I barely understood. And then I spoke with families and a lot of families who had actually lost their children had mm-hmm. told me that they had started foundations and they had funded, you know, significantly funded science and that they kept, they were, they, they kept at it. And I was so moved by their stories in particular, one of uh, family, both parents were physicians, their child had progeria which is an ultra-rare disease, is an ultra-rare disease. And I watched their son's TED Talk, which was so incredibly moving about how he wanted to change the world. And two weeks later, he died. And and their family was still running a foundation and putting millions of dollars into research and helping other families. And in that moment, I realized that I had to give it everything possible for my daughter, even if there was just a tiny glimmer of hope of stopping genetic disease at that point, which was the end of 2016. Um, and, and also I realized that, um, I had to do this to help other people and that for some reason, my voice and Mila's story were starting to get a little bit of attention from the very beginning. And I thought, you know what, if I can do something to help, like this is my purpose in life. So I launched a foundation. I started telling Mila's story to anyone and everyone on media, social media. And, um, I started raising a lot of money and hired scientists and started, you know, started a gene replacement therapy. It was the only option at the time because we didn't know anything about the gene and we just simply had to replace it. Um, and and uh, I just started putting together teams and signing contracts with companies and moving forward and trying to become like a scientist and, you know, a, a fundraiser kind of overnight, also taking care of my daughter who was losing all of her abilities by the moment and my like very young son. So that's how my story that's how I entered the world of rare disease. It's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I, I've worked on Batten's disease uh, before during my PhD, and it's one thing to, to work in a lab, and probably a lot of our listeners know about doing basic research. It's another thing as you sit with an individual and their families um, who've just been diagnosed with it. As you think about for you as an individual, you know, the fact that you dug into this, started reaching out to investigators um, and trying to learn more about it and then setting up the foundation. What was there? Is there something, you know, I've got to ask the question, is there something unique about you that that kind of enabled you to do that? Because for a lot of people, they get a diagnosis with a genetic or rare genetic disease. And, you know, it, in some respects, it can stop there. Um, so what was, I understand the motivation was just huge. Any, any, any parent will do anything for their child. But what, had you a history in the space of working with other groups or trying to kind of get people to work together to come to a solution? Or was this the first time you'd actually done something like this? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I had zero experience in you know, science, um, medicine, and zero experience in convincing people to give me money and fundraising. Um, what I did have is I had <clears throat> parents, and particularly my mother, who were um, really big believers. And if you put your mind to something, um, you know, and tried not to think of the what if negatives, um, you know, that it was worth it. And my mother was very close to Mila. She was almost like a co-parent to me with Mila. Um, very close to her from when she was born with little soul soulmates. Um, 
And as she saw this outgoing granddaughter of hers start to lose these abilities and uh, was given this death sentence, she also was kind of by my side and, and saw that like this glimmer of hope that the scientists were giving me of like, you know, we're 10 years away from solving that disease and treating it. But um, we are kind of at the very beginning. This is like I said, five, five and a half years ago, um, end of 2016. And, you know, they're like, but we're just starting to think that we might be able to kind of halt genetic diseases. And that's all I needed to hear. That's all my mom needed to hear. And she was just an incredibly positive, like, let's just go all out and do our very best here and, and give Mila the best shot possible. And it was just a combination of like reading and talking to and learning and being a sponge and, and, and seeing that little glimmer of hope and just going for it. And I knew that it was a long shot, but I've always been a very determined person and a very positive person. So I really chose, I remember one day telling myself all the negatives, all the like, what if you don't raise this money? What if this doesn't work? Um, what if you have no one that's interested in pursuing this um, from a scientific point of view? What if no one gives you money? Like I had to choose to push those completely away. And I remember building a little wall around me that was like, I'm going to believe that I can do this and I'm going to believe that the science is there and I'm going to believe that I can have people follow Mila's story because she was typical and she could have been your daughter. She could have been your niece. She could have been right. your granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And so she was relatable. Um, and Mila was like a magnet since she was little. Like, uh, like I know she's my daughter and I'm biased, but, but I will tell you since she was a baby, people would just come up like in restaurants the chefs would come out of the back and be like, your one-year-old was looking at me while I was making pizza. <laughs> I mean, she radiated something really, um, really amazing to the point where even at the end of her life, um, her hospice doctors came in and uh, they walked in the room and I remember them. Mila couldn't talk. She couldn't see at that point. And, and they said, wow, like, oh my gosh, her energy is, I had numerous people come in and tell me that like, I've never felt such strong energy from a child. And so who knows? Uh, I don't know, but Mila's um, really drew people in, and um, I saw people following her story as I started to talk about it, and so that just really fueled me. And I saw Mila smiling and laughing despite having seizures, despite mm-hmm. losing her last words to talk to me, despite losing her entire vision practically overnight, and and she was still radiant and, and like loving life. And so I just looked at her every day, and I was like, Mila can do this. If she can be happy in life with like her arms and legs and eyes like cut off, like I can do this too. You know, so she really, she and my mom really um, were my motivating factors that kept me going. Well, obviously you and Mila managed to accomplish something that no one has done in the history of medicine. And I think you set a, a land, landmark example that I, I believe will set the scene for the future as we think about treatment of these can you talk a little bit about about that? Well, I was lucky. A lot of a lot of this was that a lot of stars aligned for Mila. Um, I, when Mila was diagnosed with Bowen disease, I was told it was an autosomal recessive disease that she needed to receive the mutation from mom and dad, myself and her dad, and um, they could only find one mutation. And her clinical signs matched up perfectly with Batten CLN seven, so I was kind of reassured that. Uh, this is what she had. And that, you know, there was no lab out there. They tried to find the second mutation and they couldn't. We had numerous attempts, it didn't work. So I was told to just kind of give up on that. However, 
trying per, being persistent, I was looking over databases of mutations in batten disease, and I noticed that there were a decent, maybe ten percent of batten patients had um, two mutations in their batten causing disease in, in a gene, and then they had a third mutation. There was an additional column where a third mutation in a different batten gene was mentioned. And so I asked the question to the geneticist, well, what if Mila has a different form of Batten disease and she happens to have one mutation in the CLN7 gene or MFSTA gene? And and the answer was kind of like, yeah, I mean, that would be really rare. And I'm like, <laughs> she's already rare, ultra rare. Like, And so I needed to know this why, because I had a son who was two years old and mm-hmm. I needed to test him. And I did not want to test only one of two mutations and be in limbo and not know if I was going to have my other child lose all his abilities. Mila had been totally typical at his age, and he was typical. And every night I put him to bed in his crib, you know, I would I would lose it because I'm like, am I like I've wanted to be a mom my entire life? Am I going to lose both of my children and have like motherhood ripped from my arms? It was the most excruciatingly painful thing ever, and I'd lived that for months because I had no way of testing my son. Um, so I was on a mission to figure out what this other mutation was. And the second reason was because I was about to try to raise $4 million somehow magically in one year um, to put on a gene replacement therapy. And if I was going to be replacing the wrong gene, that would be a pretty serious problem. And so I needed to have that answer. And I did my homework. And all I found was that whole genome sequencing was like the only way I'd ever get a shot at figuring this out. And there were hardly any labs that did it. And there was one at Harvard and the wait was five months. So I went on... Uh, social media, I went on Facebook and just put a post out. I remember thinking like, oh, this is awkward. You know, I didn't, I, didn't, I was trying to get off of Facebook at this time. I didn't want to be on social media anymore. Luckily, I did not do that. Um, and I posted and said, can anyone help me get into this lab faster? I don't have five months. Um, and I grew up on the East Coast. I was hoping maybe I had a connection. No connections came through. Lots of like, you know, I went to Harvard, but I don't know anything about this lab. And within 24 hours, my post had been reposted by my best friend from college, who was a mm-hmm. physician in Boston, and she um, that had gotten to Doctor Yu's desk through his wife. Um, that and within 24 hours, he called me and just wow. said, "Look, I work with uh, in a lab at Harvard and Boston Children's, and uh, we look for difficult to find mutations, but they're primarily connected to autism. But uh, we'd love to help you try to find this." And long story short, he ended up diving in with his team. They could not find anything. And then they started kind of staring at the screen and looking at Mila's genome and, you know, for weeks on end until they saw this very unusual kind of um, insertion in her intronic area, which I'd been told was impossible to kind of correctly been advised, by the way, that it was very hard to um, find any mutations in that area. We didn't know if they were disease causing, so it'd be very hard to prove that and, you know, kind of like, good luck, you know, but Dr. Yu and his team did that. And they were able to come back a few months later and say, um, most importantly, that they looked at my son Aslan's um, whole genome sequencing that was done and, and, and compared that and just said, he does not have fat disease. He doesn't carry either of these, um, either of the bad mutations. And so that was the primary goal. He then, um, and yes, she, Mila does in fact have that and feeling seven, so you are going after the right gene. So he answered those questions for me and was very grateful that that he spent that time. He didn't have to do that. No one, I thought, no one would ever spend that time for me. He spent months, and then he took it a step further and he said, you know, um, Spinraza, which was this ASO for spinal muscular atrophy, another horrible disease in children. You know, where little kids are on respirators and 
you know, <clears throat> ventilators and on their in their little wheelchairs by one and a half and kind of dead by two, um, that this ASO had been incredibly successful and was approved by FDA like two weeks after Mueller was diagnosed. So by the time we met Dr. Yu and his team, Sinraza was at like on everyone's mind because they were neurologists, you know, and they were geneticists. And this was a game changer for them. Like they might actually have a future of like helping stop disease as a neurologist instead of just kind of keeping it under control. And it happened to be that Mila's mutation that they found, this very unusual <clears throat> retrotransposin called um, entron- deep entronic mutation, happened to look like it would be amenable to a kind of a Spinraza-like drug. Mm-hmm. And when they posed the question of, well, what if we made a Spinraza-like drug just for Mila, but we can't find anyone else in the world that has her mutation, so it would be just for her. You know, there was a little bit of a reaction of like, that's a crazy notion. <laughs> like, how can you do that? Um, but luckily, Dr. Yuna's team said, well, why not? You know, and so they kept moving forward and they ended up, to make a long story short, designing a bunch of ASOs, um, antisense oligonucleotides and, and ended up, you know, growing cell lines of Mila's and, and ended up restoring health using these, you know, this, these, these drugs that they were designing, these ASOs to restore health to Mila's cells in a really unprecedented way in the lab. And working through the FDA and um, doing all of the appropriate manufacturing and studies, uh, animal studies. And, and within one year of meeting Dr. Yu, we had moved to Boston. And this was all like up in the air. And I was still running a gene replacement therapy at the same time, wow. which was still taking years. Mm-hmm. You know, it was going to take forever to do. So it went from saying, hey, this could be a bridge to a gene therapy to saying, you know what? Actually, it's looking like these ASOs might actually penetrate the brain even better. And by the way, gene therapy is going to take you years and probably not be in time for Mila. So this kind of idea, this crazy notion turned into a reality. We moved to Boston and um, I didn't even know until I moved to Boston that this drug that Mila is about to be received was named Milicin after her. I didn't know that she was, you know, this was a really groundbreaking um, and pivotal time in medicine where Mila became the first person in the world to receive a drug tailored to one person and that that was going to change how we face medicine, you know, moving forward. So that that wasn't our intention. It just happened to be that that's kind of what happened. And just for our listeners, you know, Dr. Yu works at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, He's an attending physician at the Division of Genetics and Genomics, and he's associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. As you say, specializing really in autism spectrum disorders, but really also focuses on genetic disorders. It's pretty amazing, you know, to go from zero to a drug in a year where you don't even know what mutation is driving it. I think that that, that that's absolutely unprecedented uh, in our industry. And then to, to move to actually uh, treating Mila with it, you know, whenever I think about, you know, any clinical trial that we do, right. And we're, we're, we're delivering a drug to an individual for the very first time, you know, it's, it always drives, you know, always concerned, sleepless nights, you know, will the drug, what is the drug actually going to do for you? That's massively compounded, you know, how, how was that? Like, how was you, how did you feel around that time? You know, what was going through your head? And, you know, as you then looked at after the first dose and then continued treatment, how did, how did things manifest uh, over time? Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> the way I faced it was, you know, this is a new drug never been tested in humans before. We know little to nothing about it except for that it looks very promising in the lab. And it certainly is, you know, passing the safety 
test. Um, and I thought about the risk of not treating Mila. So I changed the way that I thought about risk-benefit analysis. It was very clear to me that the risk not treating Mila versus the risk of treating Mila. That's how it was going through my mind. The risk of not treating Mila was black and white, that she was going to lose all of her abilities, probably except for hearing, and she was going to die in the next few years. And to me, it didn't matter whether or not she lost you know, her last uh, steps at you know, seven or eight if she lost her vision at six or seven, you know, if she lost her ability to, you know, swallow and eat at seven or eight, <clears throat> she was going to lose all those abilities a hundred percent and she was going to die. The risk of treating her to me seemed like a very calculated, careful, and possibly promising, but we didn't know, um, risk in the sense that there had been decades of work in ASOs and animals. And then more recently, there had been some work with, you know, in trials for humans and then Spinraza had been approved. And so it seemed to me that this was not like voodoo science and feathers and potions. This was a really legitimate, scientifically sound and somewhat promising in the lab, or very promising, at least in the lab, you know, option. And so to me, I spent no, I didn't even spend one second evaluating whether or not to do Mielsen. It was extremely obvious that the risk of treating Mila was significantly lower than the risk of not treating Mila. Right. So there was a no brainer for me. So that's kind of how I went into it. Um, and then I know you asked me how, how things went um, once Mila was treated. So our expectations were, I, I, was, I truly didn't know. I was trying to be very optimistic, like I mentioned earlier. I tried not to think of all the what ifs. I tried to think of if this can do anything to ideally to stop maybe to slow because that was kind of the name of the game it's still kind of the name of the game in a lot of genetic medicine for rare disease right now if it could do either of those that would be a huge win for me if it could improve her quality of life in some way that would be a huge um, win for me and what happened was after we started Mila had gone off of a kind of a cliff typical of baton disease the, there's kind of a slower decline and then a cliff and a slower decline and a cliff and she had gone off unfortunately um, which is really hard to look back on Two months before Millicent began, she went off a really big cliff and she suddenly started having like seizures and this got worse and worse and worse just the week that like her drug was made, but we still didn't have approval of it. And, you know, it was very hard to watch that timing. Um, she started having seizures and they went up to 20 to 30 a day. They lasted two minutes. They were like arms and legs smashing while she kind of was laughing out of control. And I would have to pin her down and hold her with all my might. And if we were in a car, I'd have to pull over and you know, if we were on a couch, you have to make sure she didn't fall over. And, and it was really disruptive to her life. And that was happening. She had already lost her vision completely. And she was losing all of her, you know, the last words that she had around that same time. And so when Nielsen began, um, within a very short period of time, within, I don't remember exactly, but it was like a month, a month and a half or something like that, um, her seizures were noticeably less. And Seizures do change in Batten Seal and Seven, and they kind of morph. They go from one type to another, but there was no morphing to a different type. Um, she was she was simply just having fewer and fewer and fewer seizures. We never saw those seizures again of that type. Um, they all went down to a few seconds, and there were days she had none, but average days she had one or two or three, and they were tiny, tiny little like myoclonic jerks, and you could barely tell at all if you walked into my house that she was having seizures. So that was by far the most noticeable change. Um, and that continued. Um, it, her seizures did pick up um, towards the end of her life, um, but they were 
uh, still like little tiny myoclonic jerks. You couldn't see they never went back to kind of that really serious seizures again. Um, that is what Dr. Yu published on in the New England Journal of Medicine um, a year and a half later. So that was a very obvious thing. Other things that I noticed that may seem subtle, but that were really drastically like important for us in our in her quality of life and our quality of life as a family is, you know, she started holding her body up really well. And right before Melissa, she'd been slumping. So she would hold on to her um, stroller and I would have her, I tried to keep her as strong as I could leading up to Melissa. So we'd go out every day, two or three times a day, and she could barely walk. And it was always with support from me from behind. And, um, and she would hold on to her to her stroller and take steps. And she was starting to slump. Her legs were giving out. Her upper body was giving out. Her head was going, kind of falling to the side right before Melison. And after that, she started to kind of have much stronger tone, which meant that she could go. She had had a G-tube put in and she was receiving all, if not almost all of her nutrition through her G-tube before Melison. She started eating pureed foods by mouth again and continued that for like two years. Um, and she could hold her body up so she could swallow better. Um, her swallowing itself was better. Um, she could take, her legs were stronger. She could take better steps and lift her legs with me holding her fully from behind. She could alternate her feet going up the stairs, some, not all the time, but she couldn't do that before. And she started doing it, you know, once in a while. Um, she was laughing and smiling more, not perfectly, but she had right before Melissa, which was the most really devastating thing for me is Milo is like a radiant child. And she would laugh and smile hysterically at these very funny points. And I would sing her songs all day long and read her book because she lost her vision. That was my way of communicating with her. And she would always laugh like exactly at the same time when someone sneezed or a baby cried or something happened in the frozen, you know, book of frozen or the the movie. And she had started not doing that as much before Mielsen. And then after Mielsen, um, like I said, it wasn't like perfect, but she started definitely increasing like when she laughed and smiled and, you know, little things like that make a huge difference. Um, and so all of these, you know, I started all of these things kind of added up to be pretty noticeable. I mean, very noticeable to the point where, you know, in that year, first year of Mielsen, I remember stopping and being like, how, I cannot believe this. Like, I never expected to see an improvement, you know. And so that was the first year. And the second year, um, it was very unclear to me whether or not we had actually stopped the disease. It seemed to me like my intuition was telling me that while it was pretty similar to the year before, that things were progressing. And that was really hard for me, but it was very subtle. And in the third year, the disease continued to progress. It wasn't anything drastic, but that her hip, for example, came out of her socket. That's something that um, happens that can happen in bad disease. And I didn't ever think about that happening. And suddenly I was faced with, a child that was whose quality of life was significantly better than where it should be. And I was so grateful for that, but that her disease was still progressing and that now it was being faced with a child either having a massive surgery and breaking bones, a child who had little to no abilities left, you know, and, and, you know, going through pain and a year of rehab or being on like morphine, you know, for the rest of her life. And so, you know, I was faced with, um, I've told you this before, not because I just was really faced with some of the most incredibly difficult decisions that no parent should ever, ever, ever have to face. And this is life of families with rare disease, even when you're lucky enough to have a treatment. Um, and I was faced with um, Milo's quality of life, and it was not at a place where I felt that uh, my outgoing, rambunctious, happy daughter who was rock climbing and skiing, you know, 
she didn't want to be at a place where she couldn't take a fly off of her nose and she couldn't tell me if she was hungry or sick or tired. Um, and I was faced with difficult decisions. And um, Mila, you know, died uh, last year, last February, um, after three years kind of being on Mielison, and, and we never took her off that. Um, and so it was extremely promising. It was too late for Mila. We knew that was a possibility because seven years old is very progressed for seven, feeling seven baton disease. And of course, I always wonder if we had given Millicent to Mila even a few months before, before her symptoms really kind of like went off that cliff or a few years before or at birth, right. <laughs> you know, or in utero, like where would we be? And I will just say that the fact that she was so progressed, um, that she was still in a place to certainly to intervene because she was smiling and laughing and that we saw such um, promising results to me is extremely promising for the future of, you know, ASOs and individualized ASOs. I, you know, I am so sorry for everything that's happened to you and Mila and what a, what a terrible loss. You know, following, following the loss of Mila and, you know, you, you've obviously become a massive advocate as we think about trying to identify therapeutics for uh, children uh, in similar situations, and you've continued to work with Dr. Yu. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing and, and put that in the context of your sort of vision as as what, what your goal now is as you look longer term and think about the application and potential here, given all the tools that we have, the capabilities that we have, and knowing now we can sequence the genome in five hours for you know less than $500, the information we get from that and the actionable data that provides us. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how, you, how you've moved forward here? Yeah, I, I would. I, I'd love to start by just kind of sharing where my, you know, uh, where my mind is. You know, at some point I realized while Mila was being treated that this might not be in time for her. And I had so many families reach out to me across so many diseases, rare diseases, because Mila's story kind of was, you know, all over the, all over the, all over the world. And um, I remember a family reaching out to me at some point saying, my son from Italy, I remember saying, my son has fat and seal in seven. And it's the same age as your daughter. And this morning, I found out that my um, younger son has it too. And I only have two sons. And for me, that was such a big pivotal point where I said, you know, I don't know if I can save my daughter. I, I never I never knew if I could. I was always very honest, but I got to give it the best try possible. And at that point, it made me realize, like, we are putting so much blood, sweat, and tears, myself, my family, Dr. Yu, his whole team, a hundred other people who were like, joined this effort because they saw they wanted to help Mila and they saw the promise of this um, across <clears throat> genetic diseases for the future. And, and I saw this huge effort and I just thought, I have to do everything I can to turn all the work that we've put into this. This can't be just for Mila. There are somehow millions, tens of millions of families like me that are crying on their floors with their closets, you know, and not able to go to birthday parties or not able to get on flights and go into trips and their kids can't connect to other friends. And and then they lose their children and they have to like do what I'm doing right now, which is live every single day without my child. And it was, it was unbearable. And I felt like a huge responsibility to turn this work for Mila into something bigger. And that's why I do what I do. And, you know, today, um, and the way I see it is very simple, which is that rare disease, um, you could call it genetic disease, maybe an easier way to put that genetic disease of which you know, 90% or I don't know exact percentage, but a massive percentage of genetic diseases are rare individually. 
um, is a, you know, rare disease in children is a global health crisis. There are 60 million children that will die before the age of five. That is the population of Italy today. And to me, that always, like that concrete number and that image in my head of the entire country of Italy being children that will die before the age of five from a rare disease is a enormous problem. And, and unfortunately, no one's really using those terms to describe it. And the, you know, going gene by gene, and t- and, which is what we're c- currently doing right now, is I'm glad. I'm glad that we're doing anything and there's any hope, but it's not going to cut it. We can't do that. It's going to take thousands of years. So having a kind of cross-cutting platform approach, which individualized medicines offers, you know, why? Because it's um, they're programmable medicines right now. ASOs happen to be the modality we're using, but there will be others. Um, CRISPR is close behind us in gene editing and RNA. Various RNA therapeutics are kind of right behind um, ASOs. And, and they offer this um, really impactful solution to, you know, the concept of targeting the underlying genetic cause, which we can actually do because of whole genome sequencing becoming more routine. And we have on top of that these programmable modalities that allow us to, you know, hone in on these individual mutations um, and then change them and just tweak them for each each mutation. That means that individualized medicine approach is very different than how we've been approaching medicine in the past. And it, it, it offers a hugely impactful solution. Um, the question now is, you know, I think what keeps me up at night is we've treated Mila since then. In the last few years, we've only treated a handful of other people with an individualized medicine approach. Um, but there could be millions that could benefit from this, not immediately and not just from ASOs, but over time. Um, and so how do we get from Mila to millions? That's what I, that's where I am right now. And so the way I've approached that is I, myself, Dr. Yu, and many others, not just myself, is like, you know, what are the obstacles and how can we try to overcome them? And, you know, the biggest obstacle is that our system was not entire system, not just regulatory, but um, academic, uh, the business model. I mean, you know, the, the biotech world, our system was not designed for this paradigm. It was designed for one drug, you know, for hundreds of thousands of people tens or hundreds of thousands of people. And now instead we're thinking about, you know, Mila's story has shown what's possible. And that is pointing to a future of tens or hundreds of thousands of drugs, each for one or a very few, you know, number of people. Um, And so that is an enormous obstacle because that requires an entire shift in mindset. And and that's a big um, undertaking to change the way that we've been uh, treating disease for the last, you know, forever. Um, another more specific example of an obstacle is, and it's related, is that the regulatory path, because our system was not designed for that, uh, for this paradigm, is our regulatory path is not appropriate. It's not proportionate to to this paradigm where a drug, you know, is for one individual person. In the case of Mila, is like one dying child who has no other therapeutic option. And um, and has this unique mutation, which allows for a unique drug, but there's like little to no access to how to make that happen, you know. So that the regulatory path is 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 um, is another uh, another obstacle is the um, kind of the business viable business reimbursement model, which is you know why does that matter? Is that if we don't have a viable business and reimbursement model, these treatments will trickle through academics. We had to kind of climb Mount Everest to make Mielsen happen. 
and kind of like without ropes and there was no pathway and there was no guides and no oxygen. And even if we, you know, slowly have oxygen and slowly have a guide and some maps and things like that, how many times can we climb Everest? <laughs> and we've seen that Dr. Yu and his team is doing an amazing job at treating more Milas with individualized ASOs. You know, how many, only a few have been treated, like it's disproportionately high and enormous to treat one child because the system is not um, equipped, you know, for this type of approach. So um, the, the business and reimbursement model offers a sustainable uh, model that's not just an academic going one at a time and spending two years, $2 million, you know, a thousand page IND and 30 people from their institution just for one child. Like there is nothing scalable about that. And so we need to have a viable reimbursement model, but yet it's not an obvious one because we need to be able to figure out how to incentivize VCs and insurance companies, Medicaid to, you know, make this very unusual one drug for one, you know, one child, uh, turn into a into a sustainable model so that's another kind of obstacle and then i would say um you know the ethical argument is the one that really stands out to me as the strongest one it's the one where i don't have any red tape i am not a vc i am not an academic so i don't have any sort of thing that i'm beholden to and and to me the most important thing i can say is that we have the technology today. Like, do we know it perfectly? Do we know route of administration and the dose? No. Do we know all of, you know, exactly what we're facing with tox? And we have a pretty good idea and a pattern, but like, we need to learn more. Um, but, but, the, but the technology is there <laughs> and we have the technology and we certainly have the patients. There are tens of millions of Milas out there. Um, and, you know, a huge percentage are fatal um, before the age of five or fatal, you know, in, in childhood. Um, so we have the technology, we have the patients, and there's virtually no access to an individualized medicine. And my argument here is not one of right to try. This is not like, please, please give me a drug to help my, you know, last ditch effort to help my child. It is, we need to be able to, if there is technology and there are patients, we need to make sure that um, more and more children have access so that we can hopefully help them. And we can learn from them. We can collect the data. That's the difference here is collect the data and pull the data and learn from this data so that we can scale this approach. If we don't do that and it's just continue like one-off Hail Marys, um, maybe we'll help some kids, but we're certainly not going to actually use that to really pave, pour the pavement down and, and put the lights on and, and, and allow for a real path where this becomes a new way of treating disease, not just one-off these poor little N of ones, that's not what this is. This is an entirely new potential highway of treating, you know, genetic disease. So all of these are the obstacles. I don't have answers to all of these except for to say that the N of one collaborative was started, which is a hub and by myself, um, myself with Dr. Yu and the Oligonucleotide Therapeutic Society and a bunch of other incredible people to put together kind of a primarily academic hub, but also companies as well. Um, for individualized medicine to try to uh, grow a field of more doctor use, because if we don't have more people doing this, we're, we're not going to get anywhere, um, to create the toolbox of how do you do this? How do you choose patients correctly? How do you design and screen ASOs and in the future, any other modalities, um, individualized medicine modalities? Um, how do you get your institution on board? Um, you know, how are you going to work with a company? 
how are you going to design, um, you know, how is manufacturing going to be done on such a, you know, small batch basis, which is so different than, you know, when you're producing a drug for tens or hundreds of thousands. Um, how are outcome measures? Like, where are we setting the bar for these when there's just one child? Um, and so this, this N of One collaborative is supposed to kind of grow a field of people who are able to do this, who are able to, to make these meals and drugs and, and treat children, have the toolbox of how to do it, and have a central database where, which is fundamental, is that, that this preclinical and clinical data get put in so that we can learn and we can scale this. And so that is one way of addressing um, the obstacles. And another way is that we are actively a team of people working with the FDA, and I hope in the near future with other countries like the UK, um, are trying to come up with kind of a pilot approach of how can we get there faster? Like, we can't let this take 20 years. So what is an appropriate pilot um, to help us learn as much as possible in the most expedited way so that we can um, get to a much more appropriate regulatory path? Because the current one is just, um, like I said, of two years and $2 million and a thousand page ID, and 30 people in one institution is there's nothing scalable about that. And how many, how many times can you do that? So we have to really try to make that faster and cheaper and and um, and better of a process so that we can actually have access. Otherwise, no one will ever be able to access this, this technology. So those are some of the um, the efforts I'm making. And then I try my best to speak with you, Ness, on this podcast with, you know, at, at scientific meetings, at any place I can, social media, media, to really um, try to be the voice that ethically, um, this is just not acceptable. Um, and right now, we are not able to rare disease um, children or patients in general, but that this individualized medicine approach and specifically individualized ASOs right now deserves like a real shot in making this, you know, platform approach. And we got to proactively do that. So I hope that helps. I don't know if that helps. Absolutely. That that, that was great. I mean, you you look at the work you've done and building the end of one collaborative, you know, international. So you're not just thinking even about North America, the U.S. or North America. You're looking at it from international challenge or, or issue that needs to be solved. And we have, to your point earlier, we have the technology to enable us to do it. So how do we actually enact change from a regulatory and payer standpoint? You know, it's, it's, we all know changing these things can take time. When you think about you know, what you would classify today as success over the next five years and then moving forward from there, what is what is your near sort of midterm goals as you think about what you would say this is success as we think about our endeavor to have N of one therapeutics? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I would like to see not in ten or twenty years, but I'd like to see in five years a place where um, it becomes much more routine to be able to design and treat children with rare diseases is probably going to be starting with children that have fatal diseases um, where it seems like it is very obvious that those children, the risk of treating those children is going to be significantly less than the risk of um, not treating them. And um, where we have, you know, good science. So we're doing our very best to make sure that these individualized medicines or ASOs in the early days are going to be as safe as possible and efficacious as possible without getting stuck to the point where we're crossing so many T's and dotting so many I's and being so unbelievably careful because we are an incredibly risk averse 
um, I can only, I mean, it seems to me probably field, but also specifically country, um, is that we don't let that become such an obstacle and that we don't continue to say, like, we really have to be careful to make sure we don't have another Jesse, you know, and if we continue saying that and we are overly overly careful for what this is when the, when the risk is limited also by the way to one patient this is a drug that's made for just the one or two or four probably the people right in front of you you're about to treat so it's never going to go and sit on a shelf for lots of other people like you're looking at the population it's ever going to treat this is different than um a trial where you are trying to learn about safety and efficacy so that it can sit on the shelf for many more people so this is requires quite a different mindset. And if we get stuck in the trap of, let's be unbelievably careful to make sure we never have a Jesse, we may never have another Jesse, but we're going to have millions of Milas. And that is not ethically acceptable. So I will always go back to the ethical argument first and before talking about the economic one or the logistical one, which we will figure those out, is that it's not okay right now that there are I don't know what it's going to be, but we believe that it's probably five to like 14% of monogenic, you know, diseases could be amenable just to an ASO like Melisin. And that's not including other modalities like various forms of gene editing and other RNA therapeutics is, is we're talking about potentially like tens or hundreds of thousands of people who could benefit from an individualized medicine and eventually could be millions with time. and to not allow that access with a technology where we are today and, and to spend the next decades, you know, testing on animals is just not ethically acceptable. And I've lived through what it's like to watch my child, you know, go from completely helping out, going to losing all their abilities to dying and holding my daughter and watching her take her like last breath in my arms and to have to explain to my, you know, six-year-old son and have him see his daughter, you know, his sister die and have to live every single day with an empty bedroom and think, and, and it's unbearable to live every day without, I cannot hold my child. So if that's happening, that seems so powerful and so unique, but it's not unique. It's happening to tens of millions of people. And so to, to cut off that access because we're being unbelievably conservative and, and, and overly careful as opposed to correctly, appropriately careful, um, you know, is going to be a barrier that um, I hope people understand that the repercussions of that are actually like not ethically okay. And we're doing actually quite a lot of harm by not allowing for that access. So, you know, that's kind of where I, that's my mind always kind of goes to that point, that uh, argument. And just for our listeners, you, know, you mentioned Jesse a number of times. Um, this is Jesse Galsinger who died in 1999 um, died from uh, treatment of gene therapy. Um, you know, it was an adenovirus that was used to deliver gene therapy that ultimately led to his death. Um, so, um, and and that that case, um, his his death led to actually a um, a significant reduction in the area of research for gene therapy, and and a reevaluation of how, how we look at gene therapy from a basic research and clinical development standpoint. So um, that mm-hmm. just, Thank you for that context. Um, yeah. You talk about $2 million to develop this. You know, there, we're, we're living, it feels at times we're moving into a world where the cost of therapies or sort of genetic medicines now are moving from, you know, what, what we pay for, you know, an aspirin up to sort of these 
lofty numbers, you know, a million dollars, two million dollars. Um, you know, how, how do you think, as we think about healthcare democracy, and we talk about, or you talk about, really being able to positively impact and treat um, uh, all the patients out there, or potentially all the patients out there? Obviously, one of the key areas you talk about is that is is reducing that price, and how do we think about that? What, as you think about, you know, that two million dollars. What was the sort of allocation, or I don't know if you can tell us, but what sort of allocation of that $2 million, where did that money go as you think about that sort of development of Mielison, um over that trajectory of, of a year plus? Yeah, you know, I will say that Mielison costs actually significantly less than that. Um, a lot of favors were called in, as you can imagine, being the first and looking promising. A lot of people stepped up. and It was pretty amazing to see how many people stepped up to help across many academic institutions and companies and, and just everyone really just rallied for Mila. And, and so um, our cost was less than that, but not calling in favors, you know, it's kind of estimated at least at 2 million probably mm-hmm. per child right now for an ASO. And um, what I noticed is that the uh, animal safety or talk study, you know, package was massive. You know, it was for us, it was over 50%. Um, of the cost, and I believe that that's going to be true for sure. It's going to be over 50%, even at the $2 million mark. And to me, that just seems sane because, you know, we're talking about one child and spending, you know, a million, a little give or take a little dollars, you know, for one child injecting, you know, massive cohorts of rats is just for a dying child. When we, there's been 30 years of work that's gone into this, to this, um, you know, to this modality. Yes, there is. We know that there are safety concerns around very specific designs of ASOs, and you do need to be safe, and you do need to do studies. But that's insane, and and that's and and it's disproportionately, like I said before, disproportionately too high. And then if you look instead at the manufacturing costs, um, you know, for us now they've gone up quite a bit because now you know ASOs are um, uh, quite a hot item. Um, is you know there was like a fifty to two hundred thousand dollar you know price tag on a lifetime supply of an ASO formula, and so when I look at that, I think without getting into the weeds and looking at all the details, you know, and there's other costs by the way involved. So there's costs for sure in all the preclinical work. There's costs in the clinical side of her actually being in the hospital and receiving you know this administration, which is every you know of Melissa was every two months. So that's not to be underestimated, but you know. The cost of the drug was fifty to two hundred thousand dollars at the time. Um, now it's gone up to numerous, you know, five hundred thousand um, dollars. But for a lifetime supply, that's like unheard of. And so to have this massive cost around testing animals when Mila is going, you know, I'm oversimplifying it for this argument. I, I do understand that it's important to have safety studies. Don't get me wrong, but Mila is going to lose all her abilities and die. The modality is something that's been greatly studied for decades is spending over 50% of the cost and, and it being around a million dollars, sometimes even more, to test in rats that are not necessarily even in appropriate, um, you know, correlation to a human, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and so I think that the appropriate, the appropriate way to address that is to really work closely with the FDA and other countries. I mentioned the UK before. I know, Ness, you've mentioned the UK as well. And whether Canada or Japan or any other country and really work with a number of different countries and try to come up with um, an appropriate um, 
the appropriate guidelines and the appropriate regulatory path, which greatly includes the, you know, most importantly is the, the safety studies and make sure that they are appropriate for this and that this should become routine. This should not become climbing Everest every single time. So I don't know if that helps answer that, but. Absolutely. I think one of the things too, and a huge credit to you and to Dr. Yu, when you look at the FDA and how they've responded, you know, they've now come out um, with a revised version of the um, guidance for IND submission, uh, IND submissions for individualized antisense oligonucleotides. It's what we are already seeing changes, right? I think it's fair to say from a regulatory environment, we're starting to see this movement that is taking place. And I think, you know, it certainly feels like the first steps are being taken. The question now is how do we actually engage and and, and get to a point whereby it, it is feasible to develop N of one drugs um, in a cost-effective manner and, and, and with the speed that's required for the intervention, as you talked about it, to be able to actually intervene very early on or as early as we possibly can to prevent further deterioration and progression of disease. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the FDA, like you mentioned, put out, you know, guidelines around individualized ASOs last year and issued about four different guidances. And, you know, on one side, I'm extremely grateful that the FDA, you know, after uh, Dr. Yu and I have spoken with a number of times and made sure that this really was on their radar and they saw the potential of this and they've reacted really well. And, um, you know, issuing the guidances is symbolic that they, this is important to them and they see they see the potential. This is not just for some, you know, one-off Hail Mary Milas. This is actually potentially really impactful. So they are symbolically, those guidances show that they care. The, the content of the guidances is not very different from Milicin, which was, you know, started four years ago. So that's a little disheartening. But the FDA is certainly not the ones that are supposed to be, you know, the innovators that are going to come up magically with, with the new path. And that falls on us, you know, as in the entire you know, scientific and medical kind of community um, to to do that. And what's been hard for me is seeing that, um, and this is just coming at this from kind of a, you know, still, even though I've been in it for five years, I am not an academic and I'm not, you know, I'm not a VC here or an investor. And it seems to me that everyone in this field is very beholden to something. So academics are beholden very much to tenure, to publishing, to their own, kind of owned by their own academic institution. Um, and, and companies are very beholden to their investors is the bottom line. And so um, it's been hard to find what the right balance is there of how do we push the envelope and how do we do it in a scientifically justified, but I like to throw in the word aggressive because I think when you're talking about dying children and about technology that can actually help them and an approach that can actually help you know, across many diseases, that deserves a very aggressive and safe um, approach. And so being beholden to so many different uh, entities and, and concepts here, like you know, publishing, doesn't help that. And so that's been very hard for me to try to figure out how to do that. And I think now a number of different groups are coming together um, to, and I'm involved in that as well, you know, in, in trying to put forward a um, more concrete response to the FDA's guidances to say, thank you so much for caring because like we need you to care. But here is a very specific way that we think is justified um, and appropriate uh, moving forward because we have to eventually move, keep moving and keep progressing. So this does get 
faster and cheaper and more routine so that patients can access this. And access is half of the game of access is the FDA saying, yes, you can, you know, you can start receiving this drug. And the other half is reimbursement because once it's out there, if no one can afford it, um, then it's not accessible. So both of those pieces have to happen in order to, you know, see that kind of like routine individualized medicine centers and like every academic center, you know, medical center kind of around the world. That's what we, that's where we want to be, you know, with many companies involved driving down the costs and, and playing roles in the actual drug development so that academics do not have to magically become drug developers over, overnight as well. I think, you know, certainly from a regulatory standpoint, we've seen the regulatory authorities here in the U.S. and elsewhere uh, rapidly embrace novel modalities, novel approaches. To your point, I think this is very much driven by a concerted plan, a cohesive strategy around the preclinical and then clinical development. Um, you know, as you think about driving it with the uh, M1 Collaborative and and the other work that you're doing right now, you know, certainly it sort of sets the backdrop, I think, to really facilitate um, an, an increased um, speed as we think about uh, uh, optimizing the regulatory approach. From the pair standpoint, you know, I think this is always a very interesting one, right? And you and I have talked about this a lot in the past. You know, when we think about novel therapeutics, you know, CAR-Ts being an example of it or gene therapy, you know, it's, it's, it's always very difficult, you know, to think about the pricing of those drugs when they're so early in their sort of development or their the evolution. And as you, as you look at from day one, when these modalities are identified, the cost is really high, right? Because as we think about manufacturability, the optimization of manufacturing, um, how do we think about overall things like conjugation of chemistries, et cetera. Um, as time proceeds or progresses, those costs come down. Um, we optimize the systems themselves, and we see this obviously with monoclonal antibodies and recombinant proteins, so that as we think about a drug that's costing, you know, to, from a development standpoint, $2 million, and I'll just use that number as, as kind of a, a, a guidepost more than anything else, um, those things certainly can come down as we think about optimization. But you're right. Part of it, too, is how do you think about that preclinical development and, and the costs ascribed to that, or we are today using... Um, preclinical data packages for our INDs based on drugs for cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. you know, for much larger indications. It's, so how do we actually think about generating the data to compress that data set that we require for a single individual? Or I, I think we talk a lot of N of 1, you, you and I have talked about it, it's, it can be N of 10, you know, N of 15, um, but really how do we think about being able to, uh, to reduce those packages? Um, yeah, I mean... I think you're right. I mean, that's just a comment on that is that, you know, we are, like you just mentioned perfectly, is we are living in and functioning in a system that is not, that never considered this kind of individualized medicine, you know, going after the underlying genetic cause, which is often just a single mutation, that that was never considered in the current system. And so we're kind of utilizing um, systems that are not appropriate. And, and um, my hope is that as we, if we can aggressively and safely kind of um, establish what the correct ways of handling each piece of the drug development process is for this paradigm, that those processes will be, um, will be more appropriate, you know, and they'll, and they'll be straightforward. Right now, there is no established process. So even for CMC or manufacturing, I am in no way an expert of this, but I um, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, and this is like <laughs> probably a pretty bad analogy, but you know, you think about 
you know, beer being produced in, in, in a, a giant, you know, facility. And when they started making microbrews, you know, another rare disease friend of mine mentioned this, and I thought it really stuck with me is, you know, they started using the big facilities. But instead, once they started realizing they could come up with different machinery, they suddenly could like do all of this in a very small space with significantly less cost. And it made, it was actually more, it was better equipped for it, you know? And so um, I think we need to work through each step of the way because we are using a system that is not appropriate and that's slowing things down and making it harder. Um, and everyone's scratching their heads over and over again. We need to actually establish what the path is. And once we do that, it will be, um, I think it will certainly make it more realistic that insurance companies, that VCs, that, you know, uh, the prices get driven down, that there's just many more players in this market and that it's a much clearer path. It's it. It also feels like you know as we think about you know the 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 amount of full genome sequencing that's taking place, and as we think about you know people's better understanding of their genetic makeup, uh, drivers of disease and drivers of progression of disease for beyond such devastating uh, genetic diseases, there is going to be, I suspect, a demand from patients to actually have a drug that's 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 made for them and based on their genetic background. Um, so certainly these technologies, as we think about nucleic acid-based drugs, so uh, genetic medicines, um, that opens up the, the possibility for us to do it. And I agree with you, we, there, there, there are strategies to allow us to bring that cost way down from a cost of goods and development standpoint that, that, that we hope will make this a reality. Julie, I want to- I certainly hope so, Yep. I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this with, with us. I, I, you know, it's, it is, I have three kids myself and, and I, I cannot imagine in any way, shape or form um, what you've been through, the work that you've done advocating for so many um, meals now and, and the legacy that it's going to leave as we think about really being able to a, become aware because I think there was, there's a lack of awareness of the actual number of individuals that are being impacted by single mutations or single variances in their DNA and that are that are devastating genetic diseases that there's literally nothing available for them today and a, and a parent just sits watches the deterioration ultimate uh, loss of that child um, you know it's it's it is just terrible um, you know thank you so much for sharing the story with us and for all the work that you've done. Um, and, and I am excited about the future. I'm excited that we are going to get to a point where um, we will hopefully have no more meals where we actually lose them um, to a disease that we have technologies and approaches to address. The sooner that we get these uh, strategies and, and processes in place, um, the more children we'll be able to, uh, to, to, to support and hopefully save. Yeah, I, I share that dream and that vision and, um, Thank you for your kind words and thank you for allowing me to talk about this because this is, you know, it's not just only Mila's legacy, but it, it gives, you know, great purpose to her life. It gives great purpose to my life. Um, it's that very strange double-edged sword of where I was kind of dealt one of the most painful, difficult hands I, I could have never imagined being dealt um, in my life. But as a result, um, I try very hard to turn everything that I've gone through and that Mila's gone through into something positive. It doesn't take away the pain or the grief, uh, but it does 
give a lot of purpose to Mila's life and my life beyond what most people are ever given um, in terms of purpose. And every time I hear of a child who is treated, which of which there are already been a number, and I foresee that there'll be many, many more in the future, and that their futures look um, like promising, whereas before they would have maybe never had any future past the age of you know seven or ten. That in itself is worth everything. And now the question is, is like how as a field can we like completely scale this and make these drugs, these individualized um, medicines accessible so that we see a massive change. And then in you know five years time, we're not just seeing two or three meals treated a year you know, we can see hundreds. And, and then after that, in 10 years time, it could be thousands or tens of thousands. So um, that gives me great hope and excitement and purpose. And um, I hope that others listening and that this field together really comes together because there's no way that one person or one company or one academic institution can do this. So it's got to be a, a, a really team effort amongst everyone. So thank you for enough for inviting me. Thank you for allowing me to tell me a story and, um, and just talk about the bigger repercussions. Thank you, Julia. I would like to thank Julia for sharing her story with us today. As a society, we cannot afford to ignore the potential of N of 1 therapeutics to address devastating unmet medical needs. It is through work by Julia and Dr. Tim Yu that advances this cause and opens up the path to making this a reality. Thank you for listening.